The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today I'm excited because we're going to learn from one of the world's authorities on ADHD, which I've got some of that going on too. And um, Mark Walreich is nice enough to join us. He's written the books. He's invented the categorization. We're going to learn all about it. Mark, welcome to Exploring Different Brains. Thank you for having me. How did you get involved in all of these different brains kind of things? Uh, when I was in medical school, uh, first um, I got involved in pediatrics because that was the only rotation I really liked. Uh, it had the nicest people in addition to uh, the children. And then I got involved with uh, one of the faculty, Ted DeBono, who was interested in children with intellectual disability as well as children with what we call at that time minimal brain dysfunction, uh, which is now ADHD. It was also uh, when there was a big expose uh, about the institutions for uh, intellectually, what was then called mental retardation, um, called Christmas in Purgatory. I don't know if you Ooh. remember the, the book. It was one where they uh, uh, took pictures and went through one of the large institutions in Massachusetts and showed how horrible the uh, care was. And I got a similar ex personal experience because I was working with a geneticist who was getting blood samples from the Rome State School, which was a New York uh, institution for intellectual disabilities at, at that time. And that got me interested in that. And Ted got me interested in the minimal brain dysfunction. And I continued to have interest on that uh, during my re residency and then did uh, a fellowship because uh, that was before there was a subspecialty in developmental and behavioral pediatrics. So, so it was called uh, on, uh, on the handicapped child at the time. And um, it's always fasc fascinated me over, over the years. Um, part in, in with a lot of consistencies that really go back to the time when I got started that are still present with it. But it also got me involved, uh, you know, I, coming from uh, being the uh, uh, son of a Holocaust survivor, I've been very sensitive to how um, minorities and how uh, individuals with disability are treated by society, and that it's very important in terms of the services that you can have. Well... I hope that we as humanity have learned from the Holocaust. I sometimes I wonder, and I certainly hope we have. Yeah, I wonder too, given the current time. Yeah. Um, tell us about the Vanderbilt ADHD Diagnostic Rating Scale. Well, to, to give you some background before getting to the scale, 
back uh, in the 70s and early 80s, um, there weren't, there was uh, what's now the, in terms of the mental uh, diagnostic categorization, there was the uh, uh, DSM, but it was not widely used outside of psychiatry. So pediatricians who have had an interest in ADHD had, didn't have necessarily the same criteria. And I really felt that to be able to communicate uh, and coordinate services between the different uh, providers of services for individuals with ADHD, they're, they're re it really should have uh, more u defined unified diagnostic criteria in the uh, process. So I developed the uh, uh, ADHD scale, uh, and it wasn't the first. There have been, there were other scales that uh, similarly that were developed around that time, but that uh, includes all the criteria from the ADH from the DSM system, and could be used more easily in primary care settings um, as well. And so, and I initially developed it for research I was doing about how um, primary care clinicians were uh, uh, dealing with kids with ADHD, but then went on to uh, make it so that it's available uh, for, uh, through the American Academy of Pediatrics, but also that it's in the public domain, so there's no cost for the scale to now where the DSM criteria are pretty universally accepted as the criteria for making the diagnosis. Well, that's kind of a segue into your involvement in the Cyprostein Woolrich adjective checklist. Well, that actually uh, predates do, doing the Vanderbilt rating scale. Um, uh, Gary uh, Cyprostein and I were interested, particularly the attitudes uh, of clinicians um, in dealing with kids with intellectual disability and um, getting a sense that um, most clinicians don't really know the capabilities of, of individuals with disability and what they're likely to be able to do or not do. So we, uh, Gary had developed uh, for other reasons what using what's called the adjective checklist. And so we essentially took different items from very basic like uh, eats from a spoon, drinks from a cup, up to uses a telephone, manages um, checking a, a checkbook to uh, and asked uh, clinicians uh, what they um, what they thought someone and we would either have a, a case or uh, a level of uh, intellectual ability uh, for them to say what they thought that, that those individuals would be able to do by adult adulthood. Uh, we surmised, which was what we found, is that they tend to be more pessimistic uh, about the uh, conditions, and the more severe you, you describe the disability, the more pessimistic they are in the cases. And so we did a... a and. Uh, uh, also showed that um, it affects then decisions about treatment. Uh, 
uh, uh, involved, that if they're very pessimistic about how well they could do, they tend to be uh, not as open to uh, uh, treatment. So we use a combination of cases. One of the examples would be children with spina bifida, because for a while I was running, uh, for 14 years, ran the spina bifida program in, at the University of Iowa, um, that if the case was severe, they were a lot less uh, eager to provide uh, aggressive treatment for the kids. So we would give a, uh, a case that we would describe as more severe and then ask what they thought they, those individuals would likely be able to do when they were adults. And if there were a mild case, what they would be able to do. Well, wow. you know, you, you bring back memories of uh, part of my orthopedic rotations at Boston University with the Shriners Hospital for Crippled Children out in uh, Springfield, Mass. And, you know, there was a wide range of those patients. And uh, there's a lot to be said about names, you know, yeah. and the effect they have on people. Um what would you say that most people don't understand about the way that ADHD and similar differences are diagnosed? The diagnosis for ADHD is really based on observed behaviors, um, uh, but it's observed behaviors not like you're taking an intelligence test where you see which the done. It's behaviors you observe within the setting, within the family, with how they're doing in school. And, and so it's more uh, complex, but uh, it's basically uh, when behaviors, particularly around uh, difficulties, being able to pay attention um, uh, uh, and to think through things to, uh, uh, about being impulsive, and, and and overactive. And it's been interesting that the behaviors for what was called minimal brain dysfunction and then now ADHD have been constant over the years. If you go back to around the turn of the century, a surgeon in London descri described the condition uh, very much as it uh, occurs today. And uh, there is also a, a German uh, primary care physician in the 1850s who, who wrote a book with, uh, that has Harry who looks in the air and Fidgety Phil, uh, both who uh, come to uh, no good as, as part of it as children's books at the time. So the elements of inattention, uh, hyperactivity, and impulsivity have really been constant now over uh, 40, 50 years. My, my uh, daughter, Rebecca, was doing some uh, tutoring in a school, and uh, she would take the, uh, the kids in some of the special ed classes who were really disrupting the class, take them separately and try to tune in on what their deal was. And... Uh, I remember once uh, this uh, this kid who was in math class kept getting thrown out because he was fidgety and wouldn't do this and that and was disrupting and uh, kept getting up to walk around and all. And she took him in a separate room 
And uh, he was really kind of nasty and acting out. And she said, uh, would you like to pace around while we do this work? And he said, you'll let me pace? And she said, yeah, as long as you do the work. So he paced around. It was a pleasure. He just had to be pacing because his brain was different. And that's just an example of, I guess, considerations. I'm not saying everybody should do something like that, but like you're saying, you look at the, the individual's brain because every brain is different. And it's not like, well, he's got ADHD, therefore XYZ. It's what is that individual doing? But you do have to function within a society. Yes. So yes. you really have to have some skills that enable you to do that. Yep. So you have to learn the tools that'll let you get along with society. Right. And likewise, society, for its own benefit, has to learn how to make some accommodations. Talk about the importance of having a team approach to the individual with ADHD. Well, there are uh, multiple challenges for kids with ADHD. Um, so you're talking about certainly school as a, uh, as a big one in terms of it. And there are uh, and uh, a large number of the kids with ADHD will also have learning problems as part of it uh, and language uh, problems. And there's a, a high co-occurrence of anxiety disorders or um, depression um, <clears throat> as part of it. They frequently have uh, uh, motor challenges in terms of, again, coordination of what they're working with. So you're dealing with uh, a number of different people that can be professionals that can be of help from them, from the uh, clinicians who treat because the the medications are effective in helping um, uh, kids to concentrate, uh, uh, particularly uh, teaching parents in behavior management uh, that psychologists do, uh, <coughs> uh, particularly the, for the younger kids is an important factor dealing with the educational problems they deal with. One of the things for me uh, that enticed me when I was uh, uh, in um, my last year of medical school was Ted DeBono, who was one of my mentors, had set up a clinic in combination between the medical school and Syracuse University, and it included speech clinicians and psychologists uh, and educators as part of it. And it, it was fascinating seeing how they look at children differently than the physicians look at and bringing them together really uh, came up with, comes up with a much uh, more effective way of trying to address the, the, the needs. Tell us about your involvement with REACH. Okay. And you're going to be interviewing Peter Jensen um, in the future. Peter Jensen's a child psychiatrist had uh, worked with in NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, for a number of years, particularly for a lot of the large studies that that were done that give us gives us the evidence. 
and really felt that what was needed was that uh, is to be able to train <clears throat> uh, primary care clinicians to better manage uh, mental uh, mental illness in the in their patients because uh, there are only about seven thousand child psychiatrists in the country. And if you figure it out based on the number of children, that means that that have uh, uh, challenges that comes out to they would get about 36 minutes a year per patient <laughs> that it really needed additional coverage and that there's poor communication that goes on between the people. So I got involved with uh, with him in some of the early development of uh, the program and uh, became a more active teacher over about the last um, eight years. Um, uh, what's been fascinating for me is it uses a, a very much of an adult learning method. I, I, in my earlier studies, I was trying to look at how we could improve uh, training for uh, pediatricians and found uh, that lecturing really doesn't uh, do the trick for them. We tried doing what the pharmaceutical companies do of having someone come to the office of it, but that works okay if all you want to do is get them to realize the name of a particular drug that they would like to promote. It doesn't really help them with the skills they need to provide the services that they do. So the REACH program developed what's basically a two and a half day program that is very interactive. It has role plays, it has uh, table exercises um, as part of it. <clears throat> and then it's followed up, which is an important element of it, with six months of twice a month case conference calls where those who've participated in the course then um, get a chance to present a case and there's discussion uh, about the case. But uh, I've, uh, uh, sort of been knocking my head against the wall now for years trying to convince pediatrics that the <clears throat> training of pediatric residents has to have more training in um, development and, and behavior, which it still doesn't. The requirements in most residencies is only one month out of three years. And it's sort of ironic because uh, <clears throat> Uh, over half of the kids that the physicians are going to be taking care of have some uh, um, mental illness as part of what they're dealing with. ADHD is the most common, and that's what they do, but uh, they're cer certainly providing also the primary care for kids with autism. They're providing it for kids who are, uh, have anxiety or depression as part of it, and they get very little training in that. Uh, that they still, the residency still is primarily uh, focused on ho hospitalized patients. And in reality, if they're in primary care, they may not have any hospitalized patients because now there's a subspecialty of hospital physicians uh, taking care of it. So they go into practice with over half of their kids having chronic illness and uh, developmental and behavioral problems without the skills to really treat it well. And the REACH program does help in terms of uh, the, the uh, 
behavioral and mental illness conditions? Um, I gave probably the only lecture they ever had at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons on neurodiversity. And the tack I took with the my fellow orthopedic surgeons was, who's it's not their fault that in medical school and orthopedic residency, you get zero training in this stuff. Um, but I said, look, you're, you're already treating X percent of your patients are on the spectrum or have different things. And um, I said, let's just take autism. If you start to look at everybody a little differently, I said, Remember that patient who it took you 45 minutes just getting the fiberglass cast off and the kid was screaming and you thought it was just a poorly brought up kid? And that's because they're hypersensitive to vibration. You could have saved yourself 45 minutes of your office time if you used plaster and had them start to soak it off at home, okay? Because... But you can't know that you got no training in it. But if you start to look at it like that, then you can make those little things. And I think that got their ear only in the sense that it was something tangible that could be taught and would help them in the office and also converts to a, a better bottom line in their practice, too. Because let's face it, you tell you spend 45 minutes on a patient. Um, that could have taken you 15. It's a big difference. So, and I know that our, our friends at the AADMD in the dental area getting the uh, the dental students and they finally got the um, the dental board to change the rules that you have to get that much more training of disabled uh, individuals. Well, I've been pushing for 30 some odd years in terms of pediatric training. Part of the problem is how training is funded. Re residencies are, are funded through um, uh, government funds to a great extent that come to the hospitals. And so what the, they get trained on is still primarily hospital care and the severe conditions. Uh, they spend a number of months in the neonatal intensive care unit. And when they get out and practice, they're not likely to be using any of that uh, on their own because that's become very much of a specialty uh, uh, center. But it's been very frustrating. Uh, you know, we really, really worked. Uh, I was very much involved in define, helping to develop the uh, subspecialty of developmental and behavioral pediatrics. Um, and we have pushed to try to get that um, to be more of the residency. And I just learned in the program that I retired from that they're actually going back the other way. They, even that month is divided up. So it's really not as an effective uh, training. And it's not surprising they get out and they don't know how to handle the cases that we teach in the REACH Institute or to how to best develop, uh, deal with kids with with autism or uh, and other conditions. I used to have these discussions with uh, one of my old classmates was the head of the uh, National Institute of Mental Health for a while, Tom Insel. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's it's tough to turn around the elephant, you know, it's, it's tough to get it going. But 
there's got to be a way uh, to do it, but uh, I guess we're not going to figure it out today. Yeah, we're not figuring it out today. Uh, the REACH program has now uh, had training of, of over 5,000 primary care uh, physicians. So it, it is making uh, a dent in the program uh, in how well they're able to handle uh, uh, cases. And so that's been encouraging. But until we also get uh, 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 eliminate the separation of mental health from physical health, so that it's all it's all one person that we're dealing with, um, uh, you know, there is not a good way that uh, conditions are handled or coordinated between it. And when you have when you're limited to 15, 20 minute visits on patients. Those patients that are, are need a lot more help uh, really have difficulties. Well, I think the um, the odds have improved paradoxically for getting the education out thanks to COVID, with the rise of virtual learning, like we're doing now, and um, I think that makes it much more possible in a very limited fashion to educate the already you know, out there practicing bunch. Yeah, that's what the, the REACH pro program right now is all, has been all virtual. And actually, they've been able to maintain, uh, which we had some uh, uh, concern over what all of the things they were doing with table exercises and role plays, um, doing it virtually. And it, it still has worked. And the, at least the uh, feedback we get has been uh, very successful. But it's also, uh, you still need more time. Uh, uh, two or three days or uh, a virtual call doesn't replace what would be a much better training program for physicians and particularly during their residency. Sure. Mark, is there anything we haven't covered today that you would like to cover? Well, I think uh, we've talked about it, but I guess I really uh, emphasize the issue of getting of getting clinicians to communicate with each other on uh, patients and and across disciplines. Um, what we talk a lot with uh, uh, when we have the case conference calls is have have you spoken to the child's therapist, their 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 or their counselor as part of it and and how well you know the we don't have the structure in place to get communication uh, between clinicians that they need to uh, we hear continually particularly when you have the walls up between what is mental health and what is physical health that there isn't the communication and coordination that's really needed as as part of it and i i it, it would take too long to talk about um, just the, how uh, corporate the whole healthcare system has uh, become over the years. There, uh, you know, all, all healthcare now is through large uh, health corporations, be they medical schools or private uh, things, and that has some benefits, but it's also had a lot of drawbacks. Well, we're going to have you back another time to explore all that, because while it's not just in what we're talking about, as you said, it's affecting everything. And 
um, I could not have practiced orthopedic surgery the way I did today. Wouldn't be allowed to do it. The structure wouldn't put up with it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, but that's a, that's a subject for another day. And you can't, you can't manage um, kids with ADHD solely by 15 minute visits as pediatricians are required to do in most practices. Well, Dr. Mark Walrish, it's been such a pleasure to have you. I learned so much, and I'm sure our audience did. How can they learn more about you? Uh, They can probably Google my name uh, and see it. I've been active in the American Academy of Pediatrics over the years, so there's that. And also uh, through the Society for Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics that I uh, 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 and, uh, that is uh, the, with subspecialty that's a relatively new subspecialty that I was involved with in, in forming uh, are probably the most they can look. I spent the last 20 years at the University of Oklahoma. And they, they can certainly look at that. Um, uh, one of the things I think that you may have an interest is uh, I w- w- developed a service navigation program with county coordinators and uh, involving primarily families um, in Oklahoma that is s- still uh, active and um, continuing to grow. It's not statewide yet, but we're it was it's in about 13 counties so that can serve as a template for other states as well yes that's great all right mark we hope you'll come back again soon keep up the great work you're doing and thanks for all you're doing not not just for adhd but for everything thank you so much thank you i've enjoyed it Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.